Prosecutors Bob Bulford and Fred Zook prepped for what they knew would be a sensational trial. Cameras would be allowed in the courtroom. Reporters would chase them down. Not just them, but Phyllis. Did you talk with Phyllis often? I mean, I talked to her a couple of times. And then we spent a lot of time prepping for when she was going to testify. What was that like? She was very matter of fact. She did not hesitate to tell me anything. She really, I mean, to me, she had a lot of courage. She was not afraid of going up there. Still, it was one thing for Phyllis to share her story with sympathetic reporters. It was another to sit on the stand and be cross-examined by a defense attorney determined to discredit your testimony. As courageous as Phyllis seemed to be, she understood what could happen on cross-examination. She told me once that if she had, quote, just been raped, she may not have gone to police. Why do you think she said that to us? I don't know. I mean, I have heard that from other victims. You know, I was raped and didn't go to the police. I didn't want to put up with all that nonsense, you know, all that goes on and be humiliated again. Basically, you know, when someone's raped and they have to go to get get questioned by the police and go to court, it's almost like they're getting raped again. You know, mm-hmm. and they hear they have to go to court, they have to be testify, and then they have to get they get cross-examined. And depending on what jerk is cross-examining that person, I mean, some people are, let me say, have a little bit of class when they do it, and others just, you know, so. Don't. Don't. Yeah. Yeah. That meant potential trouble, even if their survivor was Phyllis Cottle. She's not the only one that I've had over the years that was pretty good at what happened and, and describing it. And. Others, I don't know whether they just psychologically block it out or don't want to talk about it. Or, uh, I mean, there are some victims that you have to really, really sort of cajole it out of them and just kind of be very easy with them and hope that they get to the point where they actually tell the story. You know, I've had some where when you're interviewing them or you're getting them ready for trial, they're fine. They're talking to them when they get on the stand. It's like, I got to figure out some way to get her going, you know? Prosecutors also had to deal with Phyllis's inability to point to Herring and say, that's him. They desperately wanted an eyewitness who could definitively identify Herring. They had witnesses who would testify a man who resembled Herring was agitated and carried a gym bag on March 20th. But they could not swear Herring was the guy with 100% certainty. Prosecutors needed dynamite, explosive testimony. Enter, or should I say re-enter, Chili Mo, the 1286 regular who gave detectives the best description of the suspect and had talked to the suspect one-on-one that day in the bar. Detectives had shown Chili Mo a photo array a few weeks back, but they'd used an old picture of Herring. That picture did not match what Sammy Herring looked like today. Prosecutors figured if they showed Chili Mo a more recent photo of Herring, he would point to it and say, that's the guy. We wanted to talk to him. We could not find him. And finally, I don't know, a couple of weeks before the trial, Fred Zook, me, Chris Contos, maybe Gary Moss, we went to that bar late in the evening one night. He was there. We sat down with him. I think I bought him a drink. I don't know. We, we sat down and we talked to him. Chili Mo looked at a few more photo arrays, but no dynamite. He said he wasn't in there. He said that. He said he wasn't in there. He also said, but I'll know him when I see him. This is what he told us in the bar. He says, I'll know him when I see him. And I, so we walked out and I said, Fred, we got to tell Sandra Robinson about that. And this is Brady. 
He goes, Schwartz says, yeah, we got to tell her. I mean, because this is, this is Brady material. Translation, Brady material or evidence that could reduce a defendant's potential sentence or exonerate him. If prosecutors possess such material, they are required to turn it over to defense attorneys. The prosecution's job is to seek justice, not to win by getting a conviction. So Bulford called the defense attorney who represented Samuel Herring. So I called Sandra Robinson. I said, Sandra, you need to talk to this guy. Here's his phone number. Here's his address. We talked to him last night, and this is what he said. And she obviously talked to him and arranged to have him come in. Herring's court-appointed public defender, Sandra Robinson, met with Chili Mo. And when that meeting was over, she decided to put Chili Mo on the witness stand for the defense. Chili Mo would be her dynamite. I'm Carol Costello. This is Blind Rage, Episode 10, Three Ring Trial. Phyllis had not slept for days. Soon she would testify in open court. She was determined, in her words, not to look like a crazy lady. She used that photographic memory of hers to review every moment of her attack, day after day and night after night. A victim's assistance counselor helped her through it. Jeanette West told the Akron Beacon Journal, quote, Phyllis relived everything through imagery. She wanted to make sure she remembered it all. Here's Diane, Phyllis's daughter. So the, the trial. She was like almost glad that it was there. She goes, let's go. I mean, seriously, she actually was ready to go. She's like, let's not string this along. Let's, let's get this guy, you know, found guilty, get him in prison. My, I told my mom this. I said, I know you, you need us to be there, but I'm going to tell you right now, in all honesty, you don't want me to be there. And she says, why? And I said, because I will kill him as sure as he's sitting at the table. And I will go to prison. I think everyone would understand that. Sentiment. And she said, kind of laughed. And she said, well, then I think it's best that you stay home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that sounds like her. I'm like, okay. <laughs> Samuel Herring prepped too. He was represented by the aforementioned Sandra Robinson, a black attorney who had never tried a criminal case before, let alone one that would become one of the most sensational trials in Northeast Ohio's history. Give her credit for taking that one. Oh my God, for a woman to take that case. But anyway, it was, well, it was the most one-sided case I've ever seen before it was even adjudicated. I mean, you just, I mean, everybody just took her side on this. As in Phyllis's side, Media accounts of the crimes against Phyllis included pictures of the alleged attacker, Samuel Herring. By the time the case went to court, the public recognized Herring and knew about his criminal past. That presented Robinson with a challenge. Actually, Robinson dealt with a lot of challenges. Many in the community were angry at her. A letter to the editor in the Akron Beacon Journal read in part, I don't see how any lawyer with a clear mind could represent anybody like Samuel Herring in court. And I wondered, you know, as a lawyer, what that felt like. That's always an interesting discussion. The general public doesn't really have a good understanding of you, you take an oath to represent those that need representation. That's Judge Irma Brown. So emotionally, as an attorney, how does that affect you? I think it makes you fight hard. 
fight harder. And it takes you back to those core values about the presumption of innocence. Robinson decided to fight for her client with an unusual strategy. Samuel Herring would take the stand. He would testify in open court. You were a judge for a long time. How many times do you remember the defendant actually taking the stand in his or her own defense? Rarely. Rarely, and we have an ethical obligation to make them aware of their right to speak in their own defense to testify, but then also to make them aware of how it might not be in their best interest to do so. Because once they get up there, and one question, one answer opens it up to everything. Herring's appearance on the stand likely would open up everything, as in the jury would hear all about Herring's criminal past and prosecutors could question him about it. Robinson held firm. Her client, Samuel Herring, would take the stand. He would face his alleged victim, Phyllis Cottle. More when we return. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not. It's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery and I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects. Phyllis arrived at the courthouse ready for battle. She wore a flowered blouse. Her hair looked 80s fantastic. So did her sunglasses. They were big, round, and filled half her face. You would not know she was blind. Her eyes looked undamaged behind her light-colored lenses. On the outside, she appeared calm. On the inside, no. Once she stepped foot in that courtroom... She put it to me more like she walked in and felt almost like a cold, evil, kind of, not really ghostly, but you know how, you know, people talk about feeling like something from another realm. She said that's almost how she felt. It was just like a weight was sitting on her shoulders, knowing that he was right there. And she could just feel the bad karma, just the bad omen. 
prosecutors decided to bet on Phyllis, their living homicide victim. She would be their first witness. Fred Zook, who prosecuted the case alongside Bob Bulford, would stick with the plan. They would treat this trial like a murder trial. They would depend on charts, maps, timelines. I mean, you just do it like a homicide. I mean, because you obviously, I mean, that's that's your approach. But you also actually have more of a plus than a homicide because you have her can come in and testify because the other, when you have a homicide, it's one of the things that a prosecutor tries to do and the defense lawyer tries to prevent is kind of humanizing the victim with Phyllis. There she is blind. I mean, what, I mean, I mean, what, how much more impact can you have? I mean, it's just really, and I'm not, not in a, no, 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 in the clinical sense. It's somewhat mercenary to talk about like, like, about like that. Prosecutors hope Phyllis's testimony blew jurors away to the point they might overlook what evidence the prosecution did not have. Chili Mo, the knife, and their somewhat questionable physical evidence. Fibers and some other substances were recovered from the alleged rape house, but they were far from a home run. The most important detail about that house was that it was owned by the Herring family. Phyllis placed her hand on the Bible. Do you solemnly swear that you will tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God? I was in the courtroom that day, in the back, so I could run to a phone to file live radio reports every half hour. The judge asked Phyllis if TV cameras could record her testimony. I held my breath. Phyllis said yes. I turned on my tape recorder and pointed the mic toward the witness stand. A sort of hushed murmur filled the court. And then, silence. She said it did take her a couple of minutes to kind of collect her thoughts, take a deep breath, and put him out of her mind. Because she said that was the only way that she would probably be able to keep herself composed enough to answer questions. Because she didn't want to come across as some crazy lady. She goes, because I needed the jury to see a strong woman who you know, was ready to give details and who was ready to put this man behind bars. She goes, I couldn't come off sounding flaky. Phyllis's voice was soft at first, and then it grew stronger and surer. She vividly described what her attacker wore, those gloves with the zippers on them, like the kind of gloves boxers wore. She described the hat, jacket, pants. She even described what her attacker wore underneath his clothes that day. Here's prosecuting attorney Fred Zook. The string, drawstring on the pants, that was a big deal. A big deal because Herring wore a similar garment with a drawstring and an open fly under his pants when he was arrested. Phyllis described her attacker's gym bag, the house, everything. And then she vividly described her rape. She shared graphic, and I mean graphic details of how she was raped. She used plain language and sometimes sexual slang so that everyone in that courtroom and everyone who watched on TV understood exactly how she was violated. I remember her testimony. Obviously, I did the direct. I mean, I did it. But I just remember it being really kind of succinct and clear. And there was no doubt what happened to her. It's also funny because reading the transcript, it seems so dry. It was a lot more emotional. 
And I, when I'm watching it and reading the transcript, I'm thinking like, Bob, you keep getting in her way. Stop that. Because <laughs> I, I would interject something and go, and I'm reading the transcript. Why did you do that? You're just kind of getting in her way, you know? Now came the harder part, the cross-examination. Sandra Robinson started with the one thing Phyllis could not do, point at Herring and say, that's him. Even before Phyllis was blinded, she never got a good look at her attacker. He kept her head covered or ordered her not to look at him. At most, Phyllis glimpsed the man who brutalized her. As attorney Robinson told prospective jurors, Quote, Do you agree it is very difficult to identify a stranger you've only seen for a few minutes? End quote. Robinson's questions came rapid fire. Quote, I know you said he was black. Did you give any indication of what color black? Do you know Eddie Murphy on Saturday Night Live? Was he like that? Do you ever watch Good Times, JJ on Good Times? Describe the pants he had on. What kind of fabric? Did the pants and jacket match? What kind of shoes did he have on? Did he sound educated? Did he use proper grammar? Can you give us an example? Robinson doubled down on whether or not Phyllis's attacker had a mustache because some witnesses remembered facial hairs and others did not. Herring sported a full mustache in court. Robinson also tripled down on the attacker's undergarments. The drawstring pants with the open fly. The kind of undergarment Herring wore when he was arrested. And then during trial, his attorney, she was trying her standard. She said, well... You don't wear the sweatpants, they don't have flies. They might have dresses, but they don't have flies. I said, I don't know what these were. All I know is that they had an open fly and a drawstring. And, and and she would ask, ask me a question. I'd say, well, no, but. And I'd try, try to go on. And she'd say, just a simple yes or no. And I'd say, but. Robinson tried again and again to get Phyllis to contradict her own testimony and failed. Didn't she correct the defense attorney at times? I think she did. I think she did. Yeah, I think she did. Phyllis's testimony was corroborated by evidence gathered by detectives Contos and Moss and bolstered by the 1286 bar's manager and bartender. As for physical evidence presented by the prosecution, let's just say it would likely not stand up in court today. Many experts today would say junk science was used to prove fibers and bodily fluids in the case against Herring. That's just how it was back in the 80s. Even back then, prosecutors Bolford and Zook knew the physical evidence would not get them a conviction. This was a circumstantial case. Prosecutors would produce other kinds of evidence and consistent witness testimony that when pieced together, pointed right at Samuel Herring. Now though, it was the defense's turn. It was Sandra Robinson's turn. She would present her evidence to blow holes in the prosecution's case. Her star witness, Chili Moe. Next week, episode 11, Happy Birthday. It's like the kind of stuff that you'd see on Matlock or like on Law and & Order. And, and as a prosecutor, I would always tell the younger prosecutors, like that kind of stuff just doesn't happen. But it does, it does happen every, every once in a while. 
Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage is a signature show of the Killer Podcast Network. If you enjoy this series, please subscribe and rate it on your favorite listening apps. And discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at killerpodcast.com. And if you want to discover more about this case, follow me on Instagram at Carol Costello. You'll find pictures of Phyllis, newspaper reports, crime scene photos, and more. Blind Rage is a co-production of Evergreen Podcasts and Carol Costello. This episode was produced by Chris Iola and me, Carol Costello. Additional thanks to audio engineer Sean Rule Hoffman, contributor Nyjah Galladay, production director Bridget Coyne, and executive producer Gerardo Orlando. Original music is composed by Timothy Law Snyder. Our voice of the court is Douglas F. Bailey II. All of the information in this podcast came from my memories of the event. Phyllis Cottle, her family members and friends, former law enforcement, prosecutors, former and current journalists, police reports, and court documents. I've tried to tell this story factually to the best of my ability, but sometimes memory fails. It's been a long time, but my goal is simple. Phyllis was an amazing woman, and her story of courage should be shared. The truth about the Haditha massacre has been covered up, but not anymore. I know you know what happened. They went into houses and killed women and children. What are you thinking? What a mess. U.S. Marines murdered innocent civilians in cold blood. And at the center of it all is 25-year-old Sergeant Frank Wooderick. And me. Murder in House 2. A new podcast from Crowd Network. 